Hello and a warm welcome to Working It Out, a podcast series from Advanced. In this episode today, we are discussing sustainability and looking at the power of business in the fight against climate change. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Mark Maslin, a professor of climatology at University College London and also author of How to Save Our Planet. Very good to see you, Mark. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And that's um, quite something, isn't it? How to save our planet. That is so much part of the discussion that we're going to have today. And you've just come back from COP26 uh, some time ago now, actually. But, you know, I mean, I suppose first question, we're still all a little bit deflated, aren't we, in some ways by what happened. What is your assessment of how significant it was and particularly for business as well? So I think the most important thing to realise about COP26 is it's quite a limited set of legal negotiations. And the first thing to take away from it is it wasn't a step back. It was a small step forward. So the one and a half degree uh, climate target is still alive. I would say it's on life support and critical, but it's still there. There were three very strong statements in the final Glasgow Climate Pact, as it's called. There were also some other positives, which is we saw that there was the call for NDCs, which are the nationally defined contributions, which you and I would just call pledges by countries. Um, So there's a call that these are not going to be every five years, as agreed in Paris in 2015, but they will be called for next year. So there'll be a new call for COP27, for Egypt, so we can start ramping up the pressure on countries to pledge more and more. And I think that's the key thing. It's about bringing ambition to every single year to make sure that we move as quickly as possible to decarbonize the planet. Okay, so that's actually a more optimistic note because some business leaders were really concerned, weren't they? So I think business always expects there to be these incredible announcements and that's not going to happen. It's incremental change. And a lot of COP26 was very bureaucratic. It was very accountancy orientated, which is what are the rules? What are the rules about carbon? Who owns the carbon? Who emits it? Who can actually claim credits? And I think underneath that was really important. I also think that some of the headlines were very negative and I understand. So at least fossil fuels and coal were mentioned in the pact. This is the first time that these words have actually been in an international climate change uh, agreement, which probably shocks most people. It's like, hang on, isn't climate change all about fossil fuels? So this is the first time they're actually in the agreement. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there's a lot of issues about the developed and developing world really not actually communicating. So the US and the EU blocked forming the Glasgow Loss and Damage uh, Facility, which would have been a way of compensating developing countries for damages that occur due to climate change. And also that $100 billion, we keep hearing about it. It was agreed in 2009 ratified in 2010, but has not turned up. And I think the frustration around the world is we all know that it's a very small amount of money. Governments have just spent $14 trillion lifting the economy out of COVID, but they can't actually provide $100 billion to the poorest countries in the world to make sure that they can actually go 
through the transition from fossil fuels to renewables in the most efficient way possible. I suppose um, just briefly, really, from a business point of view, you know, I, you know, I expect maybe the frustration comes from, you know, deals can be done and you've got such an unwieldy way of doing it. And you've sort of explained it really well that maybe it has to be like this, does it? So to try and get 197 countries to agree to anything is actually amazing. I mean, I've summed it up and saying, look, I have difficulty getting the four people in my family to agree to anything let alone 197 countries, all of whom have completely different policies, politics, internal dynamics. So having agreement in any shape or form, I think is amazing. But what business forget is the COP meeting is actually four meetings in one. So there's the heart, which is the negotiations. Then outside that is the pavilions where companies, organizations, and of course, uh, countries are all showing off how they're going to decarbonize, how they're doing all these amazing, wonderful things. And then outside COP uh, in Glasgow was all the side meetings. This is business to business. This is organizations uh, working with businesses, NGOs, etc. And these were really exciting because this is where business does deals. And this is where the whole decarbonization and the driving force to change our economy is actually happening. And then the fourth one is, of course, the protests and activists. And that is really interesting because they were driving this home to both the negotiators, the countries, and, of course, the businesses there. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed. Saturday was when Glasgow came to a stop. The protests filled the whole city and completely amazed everybody by the actual size, number, diversity, age range of all the people saying, come on, guys, get this done. It's simple, straightforward, and we all want to decarbonize as soon as possible. Right. That's so um, fascinating to hear you talk about all the different dynamics going on there. Um, from your point of view, being able to see that and hear how businesses are reacting and planning, what is your sort of assessment of where we are? So there are a lot of incredible businesses out there who get the sustainability agenda, they get climate change, and they get how they need to decarbonize. And I think we need to take those leaders and actually package up all of their best practice and start to actually feed that to other companies. Because, hey, look, I set up my own business in 2012. I know how hard it is to run a business, how hard it is just to survive. And so I think what we need is more business to business, where business uh, leaders who are really pushing the envelope of sustainability can turn around to other companies and go, look, this is how we've done it. It actually saves you money. It makes you more profitable. It makes you more attractive to customers and clients and ultimately means that your employees really like working for your company. Yes, I, I'm going to pick up on so many of the things you say um, there. So you kind of said there why it is important as a business to get it. But what would you say to perhaps people who are listening to this thinking, how do we get it? What should we be doing? So I think the first thing, and this is my mantra for everything, is talk about it. So if you allow your staff and yourself to talk about the sustainability agenda, what you'll find is there'll be certain things in your company that people start to go, well, hang on, why are we doing it this way? We should do it this way. 
And I have to say, I've been incredibly lucky. I've worked with startup companies and billion dollar companies. And what's really interesting is it's usually a couple of people that just have that bit of climate anxiety. They talk over coffee. They suddenly find that they all have a similar worry. And then they start thinking, well, how can we make our company do something slightly different? And that snowballs. I call them green viruses. They infect the whole company. And suddenly the CEO gets it and goes, oh, yes, brilliant. And I think that's first. So my first rule is talk about it because you'll be amazed what your company can do just straight by actually recognizing there's an issue and a problem to be solved. I mean, there are so many different levels that that could be done. I did one thing, um, for example, um, at work where we used to, a long time ago, get two sets of scripts. So two enormous, can you imagine over a three hour program, how much paper? And I was like, could we just have one? And actually that became a thing. Um, so you can start on a very kind of small level, can't you? But there will be other businesses who are actually, you know, can really make a bigger difference because of their products they were making. Let's talk about the small first, shall we? Is how important is that? So I'll give you an incredible example that I found in Glasgow. So Kelvin College, uh, a set of four campuses. And what they were doing this year is they were teaching uh, students from lots of different schools and bringing them in two half days. Now, that's great, except, of course, the buses don't run. School buses don't run for half days. So they realized that over a year, there was something like 7,000 taxi journeys that were created by the students taking taxis to get to Kelvin College. They thought this was madness. So they talked to all the schools. They sorted out all the timetables. So this is the key thing. Sometimes it's just accountancy. They sorted out all of the timetables. So those two half days are on one day. 7,000 taxi journeys have been saved instantaneously because of good timetabling. So that's the ridiculous thing is sometimes efficiency gains, just thinking through a problem can make a huge difference. And that efficiency gain is not just about not, not so many taxi journeys. It's also the money as well not being spent on those taxi journeys. So it, it kind of has a wider impact, doesn't it, a decision like that? Absolutely, because also then that has a real social impact because students that might have felt that they couldn't afford to go to that half-day training <coughs> can now do so because they can hop on the free buses. So, no, absolutely. So there's a both a uh, social element and environmental element. And I think this is what we find time and time again. If you deal with the environmental issues, you find that you increase people's health, wealth, and well-being. And it's always a win-win-win. And I think that's where companies suddenly wake up to the fact that actually doing what they see as the right thing has so many other benefits. Uh, let's go back to you talk about having a, somebody uh, somebody who's the centre of the virus, which I rather liked, uh, and talking <laughs> about it. Um, but when, so when businesses are doing thinking about this, I mean, where do they make the biggest impact, do you think, within their company and within their policies? So I think it really depends on the company, and I think that's very specific. So in my book, what I talk about is the first thing is you need to know your impact. So the first thing companies need to do is basically measure everything, measure their carbon footprint, measure their sort of like waste and output, and actually have a real handle on it. Because if you have that sort of, I would say, knowledge and information, then you can manage it. Because we do this in companies all the time with money and with people, but we need to do that with resources. So that's the first thing. And then there are some really easy wing, 
So for example, you can look straight down and go, right, can I switch the whole of my operations to renewable energy? Tick. Very easy. And if you're a big company, you can negotiate with energy companies and go, I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay any extra. If you want my uh, pounds or dollars, etc., for this huge energy bill, you're going to make sure it's green. So there's real power there. So I think that's the first sort of steps. Follow the energy, follow the carbon. And then? Then I would look at, if you say, if you make products, then I would always argue you should do a life cycle analysis. So like look at the cradle to grave. What is the impact of your product? Can you make it uh, easier to build? Can you make it less energy intensive? Can you make it easier to use? Can you make it more recyclable? Can you actually make it when you have to actually get rid of it at the end? Can you actually make it sort of like better for people dealing with waste? So I think that's all in there. And I think that's really important. The second thing that companies need to do is also step back and see themselves in the wider picture. What is your supply chain? So for most companies, the carbon footprint of their supply chain is about 11 and a half times the company. So if you can start influencing that, I'll give you an example. So Sky has been carbon neutral since 2007. I know that because I helped them launch Green Britain Week all those years ago. But now what they're doing is they're moving to say that anybody who supplies TV shows or films to them, they have to document that their production has also been carbon neutral. So they're influencing their supply chain. And so therefore, companies are much more powerful than just what they're doing. They can influence a huge range of industries just by saying, I'm sorry, we're going to pick suppliers who fit a sustainability agenda. And by that way, you can start to spread this sort of like incredible change far and wide. Okay, so I'm going to ask a really stupid question here. How does Sky, how is it carbon neutral? So what many companies do, and this is, uh, I've worked with Sky, I've worked with Sheep Inc., Sofrasteria. What they do is firstly measure everything, okay? And that's really important. And then what you do is you look through every single section and go, how can I reduce that? Energy. Can I get rid of my energy carbon footprint by going renewables? Business travel. Well, hang on. Do we need to travel that much? Can we actually do things like Zoom, Teams? Can we actually get managers to actually think about going? That doesn't say business travel isn't important. I'm sorry. As a businessman, I know that shaking a hand on a deal is absolutely essential. But you don't have to pop over there just to go, hi, are you still thinking about this deal? You know, so again, thinking about that. So you do all of that. You think about your production, you think about your transport of your goods, etc. And then once you've got those and you're reducing them as much as possible, then you look at what's left. And then what many companies are doing, say, right, I really want to get rid of that. How do I do that? And then they look at offsetting and carbon credits and they go, right. I'm going to get some incredible carbon credits. These are ones that I'm monitoring, that I trust. They're reforesting a vast area. Therefore, I can make sure that when I emit a ton of carbon into the atmosphere, I know this project is taking one out. Now, I know that many people are very skeptical about carbon credits and offsetting, but there are some very good gold standard projects out there which can be trusted. 
course, there are loads out there that can't be. And again, I'm and my colleagues at UCL and Trove Research are working constantly to try and tighten up those rules and influence the Mark Carney task force that's trying to actually make sure that by 2022, the rules on carbon offsetting are a lot tighter. So companies have much more trust. Yes, because that was going to be my immediate question. Um, you know, there is concern about people sort of so-called playing the system or, or basically schemes that you can't trust. So you sort of need a, I don't know, a stamp, a gold standard, don't you, to know in some ways? You do. But also when I turn around to business leaders and CEOs, I go, hang on, when you actually purchase something and you're a part of your supply chain, you know that there are excellent companies you want to work with. And there are some companies that aren't so good, but they may be cheaper. And then you know that there's ones you would never touch with a barge pole and are absolutely awful. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, Mark, I absolutely agree. I said, so why do you think carbon offsetting is any different? Why do you think suddenly just because it's the environment, everybody is going to be loving and lovely and everything's going to be perfect? And they went, and as soon as you say it's a market, it's a business, they go, yes, got it. And then they suddenly realize they have to do due diligence. They basically have certain companies that they trust, they build relationships with, just like any supplier. And once you get that over into the uh, CEO's head, they go, absolutely, right, got it. Basically, don't trust those, maybe trust those, and definitely these are the gold standard ones. And then once you get it, B2B works. And they go, right, got it, understand. Thanks, Mark. I'm on it. <laughs> so yes, you're right. I can see. I can see exactly about treat it like a business, and then things become much clearer. Um, interesting. In your book, you mentioned that corporations that actively manage and plan for climate change have is it 67 percent higher return than other companies who who refuse to disclose their carbon emissions. Absolutely. So this is from the Carbon Disclosure Project, and they clearly showed that companies that actively manage their carbon and address the climate change threat to their business, have a 67% higher return than companies that don't disclose their carbon footprint. And I think that's really true of all businesses. When businesses are really on top of the agenda, they're on top of their business, and they're on top of the threats and possibilities when they can deal with things like sustainability, I think companies become at the leading edge and are much more profitable. We also talk about the impact on, um, first of all, employees, actually. So if you're working in a company and they become, you know, more advocate this more and all the rest of it, how does that affect people working there? So one of the most interesting uh, conversations that I've had with many top CEOs is, I mean, and I have to say, not all of them are green lovers, okay? So they're hard-nosed business people. They just want to make the bottom dollar. They are going down this whole sustainability as sort of like climate change route for many reasons. But one of them is that they cannot employ the brightest young people, the new generation, if they're not doing this. And it's really interesting. So the new generation of uh, people coming out of university, out of apprenticeships, they are demanding good jobs, good salary, good working conditions but they only work for a company that they feel is ethically and morally placed to deal with the environmental crisis. So some of the hard-nosed CEOs that I know who really don't want to deal with the environment actually are having to 
because they can't get the talent that they need to move the company on to the next generation. They also then notice that people in the company like them <laughs> and actually like working for the company. So all the companies that I've worked with um, who have gone on this journey, and it is a journey to basically green the company, become sustainable. Um, actually, it's a real positive vibe and it really changes the working environment. People actually get up in the morning and go, I love working for this company. We're doing some great stuff. We're making a profit. We're making good stuff and we're helping to save the planet at the same time. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, customers as well, because they, you know, they have their own sort of they can they can move money, can't they? So how important is it to get it right so people buy your product or buy into your company or whatever it is you want them to do? So consumers are a really interesting group because they're so diverse and have so much power and companies are always vibing to try and actually get the sort of like uh, attention of them. And I think this is two things here. One, companies need to be very clear about their messaging and need to be very open and honest and transparent about their environmental goals, their sustainability goals, and their carbon targets. Because I can tell uh, companies until I'm blue in the face, the public can smell greenwash a mile off, okay? There, there is greenwash. Yeah, greenwash. You know, that's sort of like, hey, we're all doing great stuff. And it's like, no, you're not. So I think that's really important that you do not underestimate the consumer or your customers. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is we really need government to step up. And I had this wonderful conversation with Deborah Meaden about what can governments do to support industry and business. And actually, having talked to loads of industry leaders, what they want is government to put in strict regulation. This sounds very strange. They want strict regulation, but they also want something else. They want it enforced because, of course, all these business leaders, they're so good. They're going to make a profit, whatever the actual legal framework is. And they're really happy to have that tight. What they do not like is if they're doing all the right things and then somebody down the road is ignoring all the regulations and actually because they're basically dirty, cheating, etc., make more money, that really upsets them because they're deeply competitive people. And that, again, and I think that's the message we have to get through to government, which is, Regulation is good and companies welcome it because they know where they stand and don't tinker with it. Okay, set it up, leave it alone so companies can actually adjust to it. The second thing is enforce the rules so companies feel that it's a fair playing field. And then I think the third thing is government needs to do is help the consumer. We need incredibly clear sort of like signposting to this is a high carbon product. This is a low-carbon product. Again, one of my biggest bugbears is food, okay? We need to move everybody to a more plant-based diet. That doesn't mean giving up meat. I mean, I have to admit, and I've admitted on camera, okay, many times that I, yeah, I do like a steak, but I only need one maybe once a month, okay? I don't need it every night, you know? So, therefore, I can have a much healthier diet. I can have a diet that has less impact on the planet. But actually, that's really lucky that I'm really informed and I have all the details. But most people don't. They have incredibly busy, complicated lives, desperately trying to get to their job, their two jobs, trying to actually get their kids to school on time, doing homework, 
trying to feed them healthy food, trying to get any food down them is a, a challenge in some cases. So what's important is how do we help that messaging? How do we perhaps tax processed meat, which is deeply unhealthy? How do we process, uh, how do we tax uh, sort of high sugary drinks and things? So you basically help the consumer with financial signals, but also packaging to say, this is good for you. This will be good for your family. And I think we need a lot more of that help from government because companies really need that push to make sure that they're signaling properly to the consumer. I'm interested, um, do you think there's differentiation between different types of consumer? I, mean, I imagine for you, you know, if, it, if you're buying something and it says high carbon product, for example, you are super educated about this, you are not, not likely to buy it. But, you know, there will be a differentiation, won't there? Oh, absolutely. And for me, what this is about is trying to ensure that there is equity and fairness. Because at the moment, most people in this country are not particularly well off. And actually, they are really worried about having enough money to actually feed their family. I mean, come on, we have huge numbers of food banks, which again, is a this is probably a discussion for a completely another podcast, because of course, I never understand why we have extreme poverty in this country when we're the sixth largest economy in the world. But that's a political decision. But those people, they basically have to choose the cheapest food option they can to make sure they can feed the family. And at the moment, that is the most processed and the cheapest cuts of meat, etc. And so it's the least healthy. Also, probably environmentally has a bigger impact, does it? Oh, absolutely. The, the meats, particularly red meat, has a huge impact on the environment. To give you an example of the different life expectancy across a city. If we take, say, the richest part of London, say Hampstead, and you take one of the poorest boroughs sort of like um, Candom or Islington in places, the life expectancy difference is about 15 years in the same city, three or four miles apart, because of the access to food, healthcare, and things like that, which is absolutely ridiculous. But I think the most important thing there is we need to make sure that we can provide healthy food for the people that have the least money in their pocket. There are lots of really interesting ways of doing this. You can make sure that all school meals have to be plant-based. You can make sure that organizations, and lots of companies are doing this. I've seen that sort of uh, my own university will not allow any corporate event to have meat or fish on the actual sort of uh, menu. So lots of organizations are already shifting towards plant-based. We just need to help the rest of society catch up. Can I ask you on a wider sense as well? So just around that point about business motivation to become more involved in all of this, become more sustainable, and how much impact it has on you know that that purchase power? Do you sort of I mean so if people you know will it will it come to a point where people will not buy your product if you are not if you have not bought into this properly? So I think this is about different peoples within a society because there will always be a group that we know who will be swayed by the green claims of companies and making sure that they try to be as sustainable in their purchasing as possible. But actually, the majority of people in the UK, they are really 
financially challenged and therefore it's going to be cost. And again, at the end of the day, they'll look at two products and they'll go, look, I know that one's better for the planet, but I can't afford that one. So I think that's the thing we need to do. We have to make sure that this is a society-wide change not just for the upper middle classes. So actually, it's incumbent on businesses, from what you're saying, to get it right. Oh, absolutely. Business, what I love about business, and this is why I set one up, is they are dynamic, they can change quickly, they're entrepreneurial, they can actually really shift the agenda much quicker than government. And it's really interesting coming uh, and having lots of conversations at COP26 with businesses where they said, we're going to change this. We're going to change how we deal with waste. We're going to change the agenda on sort of like food. And I think that's amazing. And that's why even though people seem to always criticize uh, a business because they see it's just one sort of like evil empire. No, actually, many of the changes we're going to have to have in the next sort of like five to 10 years are all going to be driven by brilliant businesses coming in. And you've already seen this. Look at the car industry. The car industry will be going electric. Why? Because governments have mandated it? No, because Tesla has come in and gone, look, I can make billions and billions from this and we're all going to save the planet. At which point, every other car company, you can see Ford going, yes, we're not going to make any uh, petrol car engine from 2030 onwards. Huge announcement. Okay, so sometimes business, competing with business, actually drives the agenda much faster than government. Which is really uh, great to hear, actually. So um, what do you think are the key ingredients for successful sustainability action in business? Is there particular things people should be thinking about? So I think it is two things. One, there needs to be leadership. So I feel that right at the top of the companies, you need that leadership vision for the future. And again, it's a bit like Microsoft. Microsoft knows that they're going to be a company for the next 100 years, okay? So what they've said is, we're going carbon neutral by 2030. And then between 2030 and 2050, they're going to take out of the atmosphere all of the carbon that they put in and their value chain and their supply chain since their formation in 1975. And I think that's the big change. Companies are not thinking, oh, I'm going to be bought in four years or five years. Who cares? No, companies are now in it for the long haul. They are, they are names that are going to stay with us for centuries and therefore they can plan much longer term. That's the first thing. So that's the leadership and vision. Second thing is trust your employees, empower them. Because again, all of the great ideas that come from companies are from the employees and you'll find that they have incredible ideas about how to make the company better, more sustainable, and they will be infused. If they get given the jobs going, hey, look, let's make this company greener, they go, oh, thank goodness, I've been really wanting to try this out. And some of the ideas may work and some of them don't. But the great thing about companies is you can try things out in small parts and then spread it to the whole company. So that's the two things, leadership and vision, empower your employees because they are the most important thing you have. And I'm going to ask this question in a strange way. So how vital is sustainability for the sustainability of your business? So you'll notice that certain companies have disappeared off of the uh, face of the earth. I, I always use Blockbuster 
as a classic example. You know, you used to go there to rent your uh, video and then your DVD. And now, of course, it's all streaming. This is the same with sustainability. If your company does not engage with sustainability, the climate change agenda and the support of our environment, then you will be going the same way as Blockbuster. Does it have to cost you as a business? Most companies that I know, once they start doing the carbon accountancy and they start dealing with all the internal stuff, they start saving money. My best story is from 15 years ago, BP, yes, BP had an internal carbon market to actually manage the carbon of the whole of their company. So not the oil, but what they themselves did. And in one year, they saved £50 million. Now, admittedly, that's <laughs> not very much when it's an operating cost of however many sort of billions. But it showed that just by thinking about things and actually managing, you then can train costs. So it's really interesting that your financial director of your company, the, all the accountants love carbon because it also means that they can keep a handle on your costs of your company at the same time. So what's the first thing to do that somebody's listening to this podcast, first thing they should do, then they should think about changing? Oh, so the first thing is, of course, is to buy my book, How to Save the Planet. <laughs> uh, apart from that. Apart from that, I think the first thing is, is to sit down with people in your company that understand the company, okay? And sit down with them and go, right, how do we actually measure our impact? What are the actual ISOs that we need to actually uh, take from regulation to look at to help us? What other companies can actually come in and help us work out how to monitor our impact? And I think that's always the first thing is if you understand what your company is doing, if you understand its impact, then at least you can have those facts and figures to hand and you can work out stage by stage, how you can actually change those for the better. So some people who might be listening to this might still be thinking, well, you know, what is the point in us, in our small company, larger company, whatever it is, and making all this effort when other huge countries are not doing the same thing? So I think the first thing is to realize that all countries in the world are on the same path. We're all decarbonizing. And that's one of the interesting things about COP26. So, for example, everybody seems to blame China. However, if you think about it, China now has an internal carbon market, about the same size as the European trading scheme. So they are already starting to trade carbon and start ratcheting down. I think the other thing is to realize is India announced at COP26 that they were going to put a huge amount of money and energy into renewables in the next 10 years. And the scale of this is just huge. I mean, just if you happen to be a company in the renewable energy sector, this is like Nirvana. I mean, just the amount of uh, energy they're going to require is huge. So there's also opportunities around the world. And so again, blaming other countries, I don't think is the right way to go. I think we have a historic legacy. We have basically been polluting for 150 years. And I also think when it comes to business, there are so many opportunities both in this country and abroad because the whole economy is changing. The world is changing to a green economy. The number of jobs completely outweighs 
sort of uh, say fossil fuels 10 to 1 in the green economy. So again, this is an agenda that is not going away. This is not some fad. This is actually a global agenda that business needs to get on board if they're going to be part of the solution and, of course, make a little bit of profit. Yes. And what I've liked about this podcast is you clearly see business as a positive mover um, in all of this. So uh, one final question. Your book is How to Save Our Planet. My question to you is, will we save our planet? So I'm very optimistic because, again, all of the mood music from all of the countries in the world, all the companies I engage with and individuals is positive about dealing with it. Now, will we keep climate change to one and a half degrees? Maybe not. Okay, I'm not that optimistic. But again, if we keep it to 1.7, 1.8, even two degrees or even 2.1 degrees, that is a huge success compared with the four or five degrees we were looking at, say, 10 years ago. And also, I think because we're having these conversations, because we're realizing the huge impact humans have on the environment, the deforestation rates, the plastics in all our seas and oceans, I think that's important because we're starting to turn the society. We're starting to change our views. And we're realizing that if we can lift everybody out of poverty in the whole world, then we want them to have a nice world to actually live in. And everyone, every business has a part to play as, as far as you see. Oh, absolutely. This is uh, a tripartite. Government needs to set the scene. They need to help with regulation, taxation, subsidies and vision. We need companies to actually come in and be the dynamics of like driver of innovation, uh, producing new products, new ideas and new ways of doing things in a much more green, sustainable way. And then there's individuals. Individuals need to demand change from government. They need to demand change from companies. And actually, at the end of the day, where they put their money is going to be key to driving business and governments into the future. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm going to let you get on, read. Um, you can't see it to anybody who's listening to this podcast, but there are so many books behind you. Have you read them all? <laughs> Um, yes, and I have to say, quite a few of them are graphic novels. So um, it's it's <laughs> okay. not it's not in intellectual. Trust me, that I have a downtime. Absolutely wonderful to speak to you. And uh, I, all I have to say is, uh, good luck in the Welsh jungle. Ah, <laughs> oh, you cheeky you are! Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Um, I shall shall enjoy it. Absolutely wonderful to speak to you, Professor Mark Masson. Thank you very much indeed for your time on this podcast. It's been brilliant. Thank you. 